Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon. My name is Pascal Gagneux. I'm the Associate Director of CARTA, and it is my pleasure to welcome you all today for this public CARTA Symposium on Early Hominids. We're very fortunate to have a cast of eminent researchers from four different continents, and I'd like to thank all the speakers for traveling very far, in some cases, to uh, make this conference possible. And with no further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Fred Gage from the Salk Institute, CARTA co-director. Thank you, Pascal, and I'd like to add my welcome to, to you all. So CARTA, actually, is um, the Center for Academic Research and Training in Anthropogeny. So what's anthropogeny? Uh, the most recent definition of the term <coughs> from the Oxford English Dictionary is investigation of the origin of humans. However, as early as 1839 in the Hopper uh, Medical uh, District, the study it was defined as the study of uh, the generation of man. So we have a mission statement uh, for this uh, organization, and it is to use all rational and ethical approaches to seek all verifiable facts from all relevant disciplines to explore and explain the origins of the human phenomenon. An important caveat here is while we minimize the complex organizational structures and hierarchies that often infest these kinds of in, uh, organizations and avoid any under, unnecessary, unnecessary paperwork and bureaucracy, the hope is to get to the science and get the discussions uh, out front. This would not be possible without our, our major sponsors who've, uh, with great foresight, uh, sponsored this organization, uh, the graduate, school, graduate program that surrounds it, as well as these conferences. And the first one is the uh, G. Harold and Leah Mathers Charitable Foundation based in New York. And secondarily, but not least, Annette Merrill-Smith uh, is very much appreciated for her continued support of this effort. These individuals are, are foresight, foresighted and, and extremely important for us. So with that, I'd like to uh, introduce the chair of this uh, symposium uh, and, and the person that's really made uh, the insides of it work, and that's uh, Tim White. He's currently the director of the Human Evolution Research Center and professor of integrative biology and the curator of the biological anthropology at the Hearst Museum of Anthropology at the University of Berkeley. And I'll leave it at that and welcome uh, Tim as the director of this uh, symposium. I want to thank everybody for coming this afternoon. I can guarantee you of one thing. There has never been a symposium like this, and it's exceedingly unlikely that there will ever be another one. So it's very unique. And for this opportunity, I would like to thank on behalf of all the speakers today, the organizers, give you a little bit of history on this uh, particular symposium. When CARTA was found in the early days, uh, Dr. Varkey called me and said, you know, we really ought to have a symposium on earliest hominids. 
And I remember at the time saying, you know, it's really not a good time for that. And for me, it's often not a good time this time of year because we do field work this time of year in in Africa. Uh, But it was also not a good time because we didn't have enough early hominids when CARTA began. And fortunately, uh, we now have enough. So when Ajit, who's very, very persistent, uh, called me last January, he said, okay, now I have another idea. Why don't you chair a symposium that's all about all aspects of human bipedality? And I said, well, no, because I don't do that kind of research. I have colleagues who do those kinds of things, and sometimes I'm not a very good biped either, so why don't, you, why don't we think about this? It might be time to have this earliest hominids symposium, because we knew that within the next year, a lot of new things were going to be published. So by May of 2009, the symposium evolved into what you will experience this afternoon. So let's get started. My part of this is to introduce the symposium, and I want to start with the big picture and move into the past. The first thing I want to do is not go very deeply into the past. One year ago, we can still remember this. A drastic tuition spike at the University of California threatens public education here. How many students and faculty were outraged by these tuition increases? I'm a faculty member. How many of you were not outraged by these tuition increases? Thanks for being honest. 175 years ago, Charles Darwin visited the Galapagos. He arrived at the Galapagos as a creationist, and he left the Galapagos as a creationist. He went on to develop his ideas about evolution by natural selection. He went on to develop his historical perspective. But of course, when he visited the Galapagos, he'd just come from the New World, from South America. And this hemisphere, it turns out, Darwin couldn't have known it in his time, has only been occupied for about 15,000 years. And there's an amazing part of this story, which is actually local. Right here in La Jolla, right under the Chancellor's residence in the 1970s, two human skeletons were excavated. These are the La Jolla burials. They're about 9,600 years old. Very, very important evidence. How many of you would be outraged to learn that your Chancellor Fox at UCSD tried to dispossess our university, because we're all from the same university, of these remains? How many people would be outraged by that? Not as many. I don't understand why not. How many of you would be outraged to learn that she wanted to do this due to the complaints of a small but vocal and wealthy group of creationists? How many of you would be outraged that the UC San Diego administration is preventing qualified researchers currently from studying that evidence? Yeah, I find it outrageous too. All right, that's the controversial part of my talk. 
What's not controversial is that when you try to study the human condition and human evolution, you need evidence. Darwin said we're not here concerned with hopes or fears, only the truth as far as our reason allows us to discover it. I have given the evidence to the best of my ability. 1871, Darwin had almost no fossil evidence at the time. Today we know that Neanderthals went extinct around 30,000 years ago. Our own species appears in Africa at 160,000 years ago. About a half a million years ago, those Neanderthals became a separate branch or a clade. We today know that there weren't any hominids anywhere except Africa until after around two million years ago. We know that in Africa, our own branch, we call Homo, evolved. Stone tools began to be used about 2.7 million years ago. There's another even earlier genus known as Australopithecus that originates around 4.3. We know that we shared a last common ancestor with chimpanzees more than 6 million years ago, and we know that this is the segment of human evolution that today's symposium is about. But we have even more. More evidence from what we might think of as a planet of the apes, at least an old world of the apes. Because from Barcelona to Yunnan, from Namibia to Hungary, there's real species diversity right there in the Miocene between 8 and 18 million years ago. But we're not going to talk about those today. It'd be a great topic of a different symposium. Today we're going to talk about this part of the primate family tree, our part, hominids. Now, it being San Diego... I have the great advantage of not having to take the time to explain what each one of these primates is. You all know that. What we didn't know for a very long time is exactly what the genetic relationships were among these primates. And it was due, starting in the 1960s and continuing all the way up until the modern genomic sequencing, we have now learned what our relationship is. We know that today the living mammals most closely related to ourselves are the two species of chimpanzees. And they're very closely related to each other. They only split about two million years ago. Unfortunately for the apes, we don't have very good fossil records. But all of these fossils down here along our lineage and a couple off our lineage but closely related to us are placed in the family hominidae. And when I use the term hominid, This is what I mean, and most of the speakers in this symposium will use that name, and that's what we mean when we say hominid. So that's our real focus. And our focus really is on the earlier part of this branch or this clade of the family tree. So when we thought about, okay, who are we going to invite for for speakers at CARTA? Uh, Who who are you going to invite? Well, first, let's set the topic. The topic here we decided was going to be about the hominids themselves. If we go too broadly, we'd be here all week to talk about the context, the the environment, climate, geology, and so forth, focusing in on the hominids. So who are you going to call? Who are you going to invite? Well, somebody maybe who found the oldest hominid fossils. And you want people that are recognized globally for having found the earliest, you know, people that have streets named after them. For example, you would want Michel Brunet, who found the oldest hominid fossil and has a street named after him. So, okay, we've got one speaker lined up. What do we do next? Who else has a street named after him? And it turns out nobody (laughs) in paleoanthropology. So 
we had to dip more deeply into the barrel, people who actually lead field research, recover and analyze fossils, people who are still finding fossils. And these people will talk about the fossils they are actively finding in places like Chad, Ethiopia, Kenya, and South Africa. I work, and some of my colleagues work, in this part of the Afar Rift of Ethiopia. It's a lowland depression formed as the Arabian Peninsula rotates away from Africa at a rate of about that much a year, about 17 millimeters. And that's fast in geological terms. So what that means is this valley has been opening up over time due to these tectonic movements. And we have all the ingredients here in these rift valleys for fossilization of previous life forms. We have the lakes, the sedimentation, the volcanics that can date them, and you'll learn more about this. We go to the field every year. It's a very remote area in the Afar of Ethiopia. This is the field team. And occasionally, we don't get out of the field before it rains. This was last February, after heavy rains. And all of the water from the highlands comes down in ponds. And when it dries up, you have a little layer of sediment right at the top. Last year's flood sediment. This has been going on for millions of years. So under our feet, we have approximately a kilometer of accumulated rocks. So we're going to look down into that kilometer, to the bottom half of it in the middle Awash Valley. Beginning in 1992, Gen Sua, one of our speakers, found the first fossil from a horizon of 4.4 million years ago. We named it Artipithecus ramidus. It's from Aramis, Ethiopia. But what happens if you go further down in the rock record, toward 6 million years ago? Well, it proves to be difficult to find these older hominids. Here's a chart of all of them. We'll be talking about them today in the symposium. Starting in 1997, another of our speakers, Johannes Haile Selassie, found the first lower jaw of this thing called Ardipithecus cadaba. Shortly thereafter, in Kenya, something called Auroran was found. Andrew Hill, one of our speakers, will be talking about this. And Michel Brunet found this thing in Chad. Now, disclosure. The total combined remains from these very early rocks, late Miocene, we call them in age, can fit into two shoeboxes. When we plot out what's actually been found, older than five and a half million years ago, we have canines, incisors, premolars, and molars. So we have dentition from all of these sites. We have lower jaws from all of the sites, but only one site has yielded the face and the vault that you saw on Time magazine. How have we done below the neck? Even more poorly. A couple of leg bones from Kenya. No matching parts from Ethiopia and Chad. This is really pathetic. There's not even any toe bones. Like I say, fits in a shoebox. Do all these represent the same species lineage? Well, the answer can only be ascertained at this point based on that evidence, which is limited. And when you look at the distribution of these traits, what you find is that there's not much variation there at all. Certainly not as much as there is between orangutans, gorillas, chimpanzees. It's really arguable whether there's even as much difference as there is between pygmy chimps and common chimps. So answer, really too early to tell, but probably at least these things are in the same genus. Now what about these? What, what, what else can we tell about the biology from these forms? Well, do any of these fossils sample the hominid clade? Are they more closely related to us than to any other organism? 
Another way to ask that question, do these fossils have any characters shared uniquely with later hominids, such as Lucy? And the answer is, yes, they do, especially in the canines in the premolars, the face and the vault, and in the leg. Fortunately for paleontology, the evidence gets better in younger rocks. So, for example, at 1.6 million years ago, we have the Turkana boy. We have some South African skeletons. Here's Lucy from Ethiopia at 3.2 million years ago. Johannes has gone on to open his own site. He just announced this skeleton in the proceedings of the National Academy of Science. And this one here at 4.4 million years ago. There's our shoeboxes over there. Sorry, that's all we can do. So we go to the best, earliest evidence, which is this skeleton. It's from the Middle Awash. It's from right here in the Middle Awash, spatially, and right there in time, 4.4 million years ago. Much of a skeleton. For scale, this is the landscape, and that's a vehicle. Very, very large landscape. Very, very small fossils. This is what they look like on the ground. That's about three-quarters of an inch long. It's a tooth of something. It's a tooth of an antelope that's eroding out of floodplain sediments laying down 4.4 million years ago, actually a takudu. So when we go to the fossil record, we're not going to the fossil record just for the hominids, but for the entire paleobiology and geography of this place. We want to extract as much evidence as we can from this unique horizon. In order to do that, to extract the evidence and then to analyze the evidence, it takes a long time. In this particular case, we had so much evidence, it took 17 years. And finally, 47 authors from 10 countries, 11 papers published last October in science. Um, now, an interesting thing happened along the way to that. People criticized us like crazy. Why, are, why aren't you publishing faster? We need to know the information. That was true all the way up to the day that we published in science. The next day, what was the complaint? You've published too much. You see, we published about 600 pages on this primate, this Ardipithecus ramatus from 4.4 million years ago. And it's all here, and it's all available online. Whoa, so what? You know, what, what does it tell us? Well, it tells us amazing detail about the world at 4.4 million years ago in this place. For instance, one of the experts on that picture, one of those authors, works on birds. He's able to take a little bone from a bird and tell you it's a parrot or tell you it's a peacock. And it turns out that almost half of the birds from this place found with Ardipithecus are parrots and peacocks. That's really unusual. Most of the sites are dominated by water birds, like ducks, who die in water and get buried. Most of the other sites in Africa are dominated by these kinds of animals. They're antelope who eat grass in the grasslands, not by those kudus. So we can look and we can say, gee, you know, that's interesting. Look how many primates there are. In addition to the hominids, there are all kinds of monkeys. And among the monkeys, there are colobus monkeys, leaf-eating monkeys. And we can do this with one group of animals after another. Invertebrates, plants, mammals, all of these animals. We can even look at the isotopes in that dental enamel. And we can plot out the kudus. That, those are these antelope here. Here are the kudus. And this yellow one right next to it, same isotopic composition virtually, is Ardipithecus. And it's in this more closed fauna, which is numerically abundant on the site relative to the more open grassland faunas. So we infer from this that the habitat preference was a grassy woodland. All right, fine. I said I wasn't going to talk much about context. It's important in this case, though. In January 1994, this man right here, Johannes, was 
moving very slowly across this surface when he found a hominid bone. We excavated, we started to find more in place. We removed the top of that hill, and each one of these flags is a separate part of what turned out to be one hominid individual's skeleton. Here's Johannes with a piece of the hand in Matrix. Here's a piece of the hand. This is from the palm of a primate who died here 4.4 million years ago, slowly exposed, and then removed. These bones were very fragile, very broken. But when we had them all extracted three years later, and when we had them all cleaned of matrix another five years later, we can start the analysis of the teeth, the skull, the hands, the feet, and the pelvis. And we ended up with an individual. Only one individual was represented. But at the same time, we were working in the same time horizon, and we found 115 hominid specimens of other individuals. In studying this massive material for all this time, we're able to learn that this skeleton, the new one from Ethiopia, shared a lot of characters with later skeletons like Lucy, and indeed with our own skeleton. What are these characteristics? Well, the canine teeth are very feminized, even in the male individuals. The skull is very short. The pelvis is short and broad in the upper part. And the foot is very specialized on the side of the foot. Very interesting organism. And since it's so close, to the split with the apes, it also casts some light on chimpanzees. So now we can understand, because of this fossil record, that chimpanzees have been evolving at the same time that humans have. They've evolved these long bones in the palm of their hands. They're not short like the one we dug out of the ground. They're very long. They're elongate. They're knuckle walkers. Their huge incisors are highly evolved for their frugivorous diet. Their short backs, their flexible grasping feet, their knuckle walking, their vertical climbing, their diets, indeed their social structures are probably highly derived. All right, so we published this last October, and the controversy so far has been about, did it really prefer a woodland habitat? Is it the ancestor of Australopithecus? What kind of locomotion did it use? And is it a hominid? The answer to the context is yes. You've seen some of the data. There's a lot more. Is it a hominid? Seems to be yes. You'll hear more about that in the symposium. Seems to be bipedal on the ground. And it may actually be the ancestor of later hominids, at least generically speaking. Let's look at why we would say these kinds of things. We take a foot of a chimpanzee. The old anatomist used to call the chimpanzees and gorillas, the apes, the great apes, quadramanus, because their feet are so much like hands. Interesting thing we found in studying this fossil from Ethiopia, imagine that you are Ardipithecus and you're looking down at the top of your foot. You've got a problem when you go to the shoe store because your big toe sticks out from the side. How do we know that about this creature? Because we can look in three dimensions at that joint. This is the joint right there, and it's a hinge joint. Your toe won't do this. Nobody's toe in this room, your large toe, can't do this. It can't rotate away from the foot like Artie's can. So there's the divergent big toe. That's kind of ape-like. But the rest of the foot is not ape-like at all. In chimpanzees, they have very flexible midfeet, and they allow versatile grasping of a variety of substrates. Here we see chimps grasping with their feet on these substrates. In Ardipithecus, very different. Their phalanges and these bones here, the metatarsals, are very similar to later hominids, like the Lucy hominid. And they differ from modern apes in a rigid midfoot 
and the lateral foot is functioning as a lever. Nobody's ever seen a primate like this before. The only way we can see it is to get the historical evidence, extract it from the record, and analyze it. You cannot discover this looking at living chimps or looking at molecules of living chimps or living humans. You can only get these data from the paleontological record. The pelvis gave a similar interesting story. This is the pelvis. It doesn't look like much. When you dig it out of the ground, you extract it in a plaster jacket because the thing's almost ready to fall apart. You clean it up. You clean it up more. It took a long time to clean this up. Then you have important Australopithecus-like features of the ilium that aren't, re- aren't really reliant on this reconstruction. We can look at the bone itself. This is continuous bone across that surface. It's a very broad upper pelvis, very Australopithecus-like. But look at how far it projects down below Lucy in the back. This is the part of the bone you sit on, much more like a climbing chimpanzee. This is a mosaic organism. We have lots of pieces of it and other individuals. We have a lot of contexts. And so what that means is that we have new insights into relationships. In the old days when the Lucy species was found in the 1970s, we were going with a kind of a bad model. Afarensis, the fossils in the middle, we compared to humans and chimps. In the 1970s, we were impressed by how primitive Lucy and her colleagues were compared to later hominids. In 2010, we're impressed by how evolved Afarensis is compared to earlier hominids like Artie. Which brings us back to Darwin. When Darwin thought about this issue, Darwin didn't say we evolved from chimpanzees. Darwin actually said, be careful here. We must not fall into the error of supposing the early progenitor of the whole simian stock, including humans, was identical with or even closely resembled any existing ape or monkey. He said that in 1871 with no fossil evidence. It was a clear warning that was ignored by generations of anthropologists who expected that we would find chimpanzees the further back we went into the fossil record. But it's hard because the further you go back in the fossil record, the harder it is to recover paleobiological data. This subject is all about evidence. All of this evidence, all of the colored windows are evidence from Kenya, from Ethiopia, from Tanzania, of completely new creatures that have been found since 1990. Today, in this symposium, We have the people who found these fossils, who analyzed these fossils. Every one of these single patches is represented by somebody here today who's going to discuss the fossils with us. But look at the thing. There are still mostly gaps. It's mostly not evidence. It's mostly gaps. Can we fill the gaps? Well, when you ask that question, can we fill the gaps, it it reminds us of this guy, Dirty Harry, who said in 1971, you've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you? Well, back in, 19, in 2003, we felt lucky, and we got a lot of money from the National Science Foundation. We spent it before last year. Lots of those apes all over Europe, all the way over into China, were found. A lot of things here in Africa, younger hominids, but the early hominids, very, very difficult to find. You can read more about that at the website, rhoi.berkeley.edu. And here's what I think is going on. If we think of extant apes today with geographic range, they also have a very tight range of habitat preference. The last common ancestor had a wider range, 
of preferred habitats, already a little wider, Australopithecus wider, early Homo expanding with technology, and finally we have Homo sapiens. This niche expansion has been brought about by our evolving anatomy and technology in an interface, and there are a couple of pieces of bad news about this. One, it's really bad news if you're an extant ape, because your habitats have been encroached upon, and you're near extinction. And the other bad news is if you're a paleontologist, because the things that we're looking for down here with this last common ancestor is very restricted in geographic range. So when we go to a big site like the Middle Awash, we can find Australopithecus above and Ardipithecus below, but to bridge that gap right in there, we find our outcrop is a lake. There are lots of fish, but no primates. And still we go back to the field every year, and we hope to find something. Here, excavating a wonderful elephant mandible 5.2 million years ago. Here's another excavation. What the hell's going on here? Are they starting from the top and digging down? And the answer is no. We're taking down a National Science Foundation-sponsored laboratory that served as a repository of these fossils until about five years ago when the Ethiopian government began to build a gigantic new facility in Addis Ababa. This is the paleoanthropology wing. It opened this spring. These are the fossils moving into that facility. Elephants, rodents, birds, all those fossils, including the hominids. This is the Ethiopian Minister of Culture and the Japanese ambassador to Ethiopia who donated wonderful new materials. Gansua, who's here today, instrumental in this, in the creation of a facility. And so I'm going to close this talk not by looking to the past, but by thinking about the future. One of the points I want to make is the things that you're going to hear about today are not here because of luck. Only the last little bit is luck. The rest of it's hard work. And these are the people who have done the hard work to generate these fossils. And the other thing I want to close with is that education, evidence, rationality, and science is what's going to take us into the future. We are now going to hear from Andrew Hill of Yale University, who has been working in the Tugan Hills of Kenya for as long as any of us can remember. He'll be talking about paleoenvironments and early hominids and giving us a unique view from a little bit to the south in the Kenyan Rift Valley. Andrew Hill. Good. Well, thank you, Tim, and thank you for the organizers for inviting, inviting me to take part in this amazing event. Um, I'm going to be talking mainly about context, which Tim said we were not really talking about in great detail, but I think it's really important to understand perhaps how hominids arose at some remote time in the past. And there are early hominids from Kenya, some of which even my own expedition has found, but I'm not going to be referring to those uh, today, but to talk more about environment. There's been a number of ideas about the environment of the earliest hominids knocking around. Uh, they're varied, but they all focus on two main elements. And one of them is the concern that the origin of the human lineage, which is mainly characterized by walking around on, on your back legs, which is a rather unusual thing to do, has got something to do with climate and environmental change. 
And this goes back all the way to Darwin, who thought that bipedalism and the origin of humans probably came about as a result of changes in the environment. And particularly, it's been related to the, the alleged origin of grasslands in Africa, uh, the idea that it was once covered in forest and then changed to grasslands. So it's really important to try and find out what the environment was like in Africa at the time that hominids originated to be able to see if this is true. The other element that's going around, which is really rather similar and related to it but has some differences, is that we now know from a lot of work that global climate has changed quite radically over the last, well, three, certainly three more million years, six, seven. Um, but it's done so, the, the data relates to global change uh, and to a sort of average global change. And it's mainly caused by variations in astronomical uh, wiggles of the Earth as it goes around the sun. And so the question is, and this has been implicated in the origin of humans as well, uh, often linked to the origin of grasslands, but the question is, do these astronomical changes really affect relatively local areas of Africa where we believe human evolution was actually taking place? Places in the middle of the African continent, does it really affect them and does it really influence human evolution? So that boils down to this vague cartoon here about whether you've had the origin of grasslands at some relevant time, uh, and if so, and if not, where did early hominids originally evolve and live? Did they evolve in woodlands and forests, or did they evolve in grasslands? Uh, the idea is sort of appealing that grasslands come along and some ape gets up on its back legs and waves its hands about and wonders what to do with them. But uh, is this grounded in any truth? Um, my project, the Beringo Paleontological Research Project, as Tim says, has worked for longer than even I can remember uh, in, in the Tugan Hills in Kenya. And this is Lake Beringo just here, looking north along the Rift Valley. Lake Takana is somewhere on the horizon. Uh, this is the western edge of the rift. This is the eastern edge. And these are the Tugan Hills in the rift extending all the way along for 150 kilometers with down here lots of fossiliferous sediment that go from about 15.5 million to about now. I'm going to talk about three lines of evidence. Finding out about environments is more difficult perhaps than most people would think and more difficult than I would hope. But I'm going to talk first about uh, soil carbonate nodules. And uh, soil carbonates form in soils uh, where they sort of coalesce, and you can find them in fossil soils as well. And it turns out, this is John Kingston, a colleague of mine who's done most of the work on this and works with me in the Tugan Hills. Uh, it turns out that plants of different kinds fractionate on uh, incorporating their tissues uh, carbon isotopes to different degrees according to what kinds of plants they are. And Plants that you find in woodlands uh, and forests uh, have uh, carbon isotopes that range over carbon-13 over this, this sort of range. And grasslands, which are out in the open in sunlight, have carbon-13 carbon in that sort of range. And we needn't really worry about that. It's simply that this provides a means of detecting uh, one kind of plant from the other because it turns out that, uh, that rainwater and soil water preserves this signal, it gets incorporated in these little nodules in soils, and you analyze the soil nodules uh, for the carbon isotopes, and you can tell what sort of plants were living on the surface, whether they were grasslands or whether they were uh, forest or woodland. 
And it's a very neat little trick that gets at some of the information we feel we want. This started, really, as far as I was concerned, with some very neat work a long time ago by someone called Terry Serling and his group. And this is Pakistan, and you didn't worry about the details of the graph, but this is 18 million years here and zero here. And all that means is that these are samples of soil carbonates through this time period that represent uh, woodland and perhaps some forest, but certainly closed environments. And then all of a sudden, at around 7 million years, Wow, it goes straight across here, and from then onwards, it's all grasslands. And it's really very neat, because this correlates very nicely with changes in the animals at the time. Uh, apes disappear, monkeys come in, there are all kinds of uh, wonderful things in, in the fauna changing. And John Kingston and I, and probably a thousand other people, thought, well, this is very clever. What, what if this is going on in Africa? Because uh, that's just about the time that we thought that hominids were beginning to evolve. Uh, and we had a section of rock from 15 million to now, which made it possible to test this. So uh, John went back there to Kenya, and we sampled all of these uh, carbonate nodules, or rather he did, uh, and worked out the, the carbon isotope ratios. This band here includes uh, things that are woodland and forest. This here is grassland. And you can see that the results are not at all like Pakistan, all these dots are somewhere in the middle, and they're very, very mixed. There's some more extreme ones. Here's a good bit of forest. There's one here that's almost in grassland. But essentially, they're changing through time, but with no predictable changes. You don't see grasslands suddenly coming in. There are no savannas here. And this is in the Rift Valley, where the majority, practically all, with the exception of this lovely person, where all of the hominids that we know about have come from. Why don't we look at actual fossil plants? Well, we, we do, but they, these are very rare, and we're fortunate in having quite a few fossil plants in this sequence. Uh, this is Bonnie Jacobs from SMU, who has been working on our plants for a long time. Uh, and I'm just going to mention two sites of several that are particularly relevant. This is one called the Capturo leaf bed. And its age is, is between 7.2 and 6.7, just about this time, round about the origin of, of, of hominids. And the, the leaves here are preserved in what's known as diatomite, which I'm going to talk about more in a minute. They're beautiful, clean rocks that have, are bedded beautifully like sheets of paper. And you can just sort of fold these sheets of paper open, and you find plant fossils impressed upon the pages, as it were. This is one that I plucked down from a tree above me when I found that, but I'm told it's not the same species, which is a pity. But we got a lot of plants from this place. Um, and the environment, uh, from looking at what species they are, suggests that this is a seasonal uh, deciduous woodland. Uh, it's not a, a total forest, and it is seasonal. Now, th here's, here's something that I'm not going to have time to go into, and you may not believe, but trust me. It turns out that you can, from the, wig, from the indentations on the edges of leaves, you can work out the temperature and rainfall uh, that they grew in. And uh, Bonnie has done this work, and the mean annual temperature at the time of this site was 21.7 degrees, which is slightly higher than the temperature now, and it's not cold there by any means. So this is quite warm. Uh, you can work out the wet month precipitation, which is 627 millimeters a year, 
which is not very, very wet either. But even though it's relatively dry and relatively warm, this is not a grassland by any means at all. This is a, a full woodland right at the beginning of, of the human lineage. The next example is something we call the Impacida Forest. <clears throat> this is, is 6.3 million years, a little younger, not much, but and still relevant to our origins. And what's happened here is that uh, trees have been preserved in a massive airfall tuff. It's, it's gunk that's come out of a volcano, very hot and coarse, and has fallen down right on the forest, killed it. It's a kind of planty Pompeii, really. It just preserves stuff underneath. And it's preserved some of these trees actually in place. And so what you're seeing here is a tree trunk. That's just the middle bit, and the whole base of the tree is that. And it's been preserved in this very coarse rock and you can actually see trees in their growth position. Uh, this is mainly silicified wood. There's a lot of other wood available there. And it covers, it covers quite a large area. Uh, you're looking down on it here. It's about four square kilometers. And you've got quite a bit of the forest there. There are only six species identified so far. But they all show that this is a wet or moist lowland or upland forest with affinities to West African real West African rainforests. Now, if you, there's a good correlation between the diameter of a tree trunk at the base and its height. And what we can conclude from measurements on several trees that are in position is that these trees were at least 50 meters in height. These are huge trees. I mean, this is not some little woodland. These are giant forests with enormous trees growing there in the Rift Valley where we know hominids, hominids lived at the time, or shortly after, they were diverging from the line leading to chimpanzees. Here's just a few other sites around this period. You can see that although there's some variation, ranging from this dry woodland that I spoke about to the real rainforest, they are all forests. There is no sign of grassland at all during this time. So the conclusions from both the isotope work of John Kingston and the plants from, from Bonnie Jacobs is, firstly, with the isotopes, the signal is not at all like it is in Pakistan. There are no significant trends through time. There's no abrupt changes. There's no uh, change into grasslands. The conditions in the Rift Valley have been variable through time, but no sign of these grassland ecosystems or savannas at any point. Uh, at times, they were forests of various kinds, uh, and in fact, for much of the time, some with trees 50 meters in height. So you have these serious forests in the rift, more or less at the time of divergence of hominins. Moving on to some other information which we're more recently developing is to do with, with diatomites, uh, these beautiful rocks that I mentioned with regard to the preserving the leaves. And this is Bob Edgar from the Farlow Herbarium at Harvard, who actually works on the diatoms. And these are diatoms. Uh, they're microscopic, uh, they're blue-green algae, and they have these little skeletons made of silica. And they look like little cheese graters. And they, they basically, the rock is formed of these things just because when they die, they're large lakes that are undisturbed, and they just sort of rain down their little corpses onto the bottom of the lakes and gradually accumulate. And this is very convenient for us. We were working in the Chemron Formation, uh, one of the units of, uh, that we, we have in the Tugan Hills, and noticed that what we had here were, there's a diatomite here that you can see, nice clean white rock. There's another one here, 
I think there's another one there. There's another one just here. There were five of these things in a very short bit of section. Uh, here you can see what they look like. You can perhaps detect these beautiful fine bedding planes that are perfectly smooth and even uh, and uninterrupted. And here, here's what they look like. This is one of them. I'm standing here for scale. It's quite a large one. And so they're these very pure rocks. They consist almost entirely, in this case, 99% of the rock is just these little exoskeletons of the diatoms, of microscopic things. We've got five of them in this part of the section. Some are very large. This is 12 meters in thickness. And Al Dano from the Berkeley Geochronology Center dated these uh, very accurately, as it turns out. We got very good uh, materials to do dates for the bottom and the tops of these, so we knew exactly how old they were. And we thought, could these things reflect precession? Well, what is precession? Some of you probably know what precession is better than I do, and many of you will have heard of Milankovitch cycles. And they're all to do with the way that the Earth goes around the sun and how it wobbles, because it wobbles in predictable and repeated ways. And precession is one of the Milankovitch cycles which involves the wobble of the axis of the Earth. And it wobbles in a gentle way as it moves around uh, in, a, in a repeated periodicity of 23,000 years. So every 23,000 years it goes through this same cycle. Uh, the, another one we might mention is eccentricity over here, which is extremely simple. That's just that the orbit of the Earth around the Sun is sometimes almost a perfect circle, and at other times it's like distended a little bit, so it's more oblate and is more of an oval. Now, both of these things, in, in far as we're concerned, what they do is control the amount of sunlight that's hitting different parts of the Earth at different times. That's all you have to know about this. Because, you know, if the axis is wobbling, it's changing the bit of the Earth that's closest to the sun. If the, uh, if the orbit is, is oval, then sometimes the Earth is far, farther away from the sun than it is at other times. Astronomically, it's, it's well, these motions are extremely well understood. And you could, well, I, I was going to say I can calculate. I can't calculate, but astronomers can calculate the amount of sunlight hitting the Earth at any place on Earth at any time in the past. It's a relatively simple calculation by the standards of most physics. And you can get on some web page and, and download this and find out how much sunlight's hitting. And that's what's going on here. It's called insulation. It's just the amount of sunlight. And what we've got here is the amount of sunlight hitting at 30 degrees north in Africa in July between 2.4 million years um, and 2.8 million years. I know I'm out of the time frame of these talks, but I'm going to uh, justify myself in a minute, I hope. Um, and so this is the pattern that you have. Uh, these individual peaks, and that means a lot of sun when it's up there, and then less. So it alternates, but gradually you have more and more sunlight over this period. These individual peaks are precession. That's just due to the wobble of the axis. The reason that it builds up to really high amounts of sunlight up here is because uh, eccentricity uh, is, going, is kicking in at the same time and is boosting the amount of sunlight uh, that happens there. So you, you have it gradually building up and gradually dying down like that. So basically, the, the, what, we, what we thought here was then, how does our independently dated diatomites, these, that indicate these enormous lakes, 
How do they fit on this? Is it just random? Are they just some random lakes we have? And we got the dates independently from Aldeno having uh, done work on, on uh, radiometric dating. Well, they fit like that. And I just couldn't believe this when this came back because it's so perfect. You only have these lakes uh, where you've got the highest amounts of sunlight and in this case where this precession signal is modulated by these eccentricity signals. So when you have really high amounts of sunlight, you have these massive lakes. This is a sort of more detailed picture uh, showing this little package I've been talking about with the diatomites on it at, right at the peaks of the high sunlight periods every 23,000 years. And then you're, it's extended down here to 3.1 million years, and you can see also we found a diatomite there that fits exactly on top of one of these peaks. So what were these lakes like? <clears throat> well, they occur every 23, 20, well, basically every 23,000 years at certain times when eccentricity is favorable. The depth, we can work out a very a minimum of 30 or 40 meters, and some models have suggested quite plausibly that they may be 150 meters deep. So these are very large lakes. The area they extend in is several hundred kilometers, and as I'll show in a minute, they extend all the way across the Rift Valley. They last about five to 10,000 years, and then they dry out completely, at least uh, in the sides of them and between these cycles. And they're driven by these astronomical factors, but mediated through the monsoon system, which, which affects eastern Africa. Um, I have a graduate student, Emily Goebel, who is very good with remote sensing and GIS. And so I suggested that we fill up the rift to 30 or 40 meters and 150 meters and see what happens. And so here's the view of the rift again. And this is where the diatomites actually occur today. And so we filled up the rift valley to 40 meters and then to 150 meters to see where it went. And notice the Tugan Hills here. Uh, we're tilting up now into a map. And there's the Tugan Hills uh, going along the floor of the rift. The light color is 40 meters. The dark is 150. And in either case, they more or less, this lake goes all the way across the Rift Valley. And that's an amazingly large lake. This is 60 kilometers across. The Rift Valley is an enormous structure. We know that the Tugan Hills weren't there at the time. It was a continuous lake all the way across. Now, how does this relate to the earliest hominins? Well, I believe in this way. <clears throat> this, this is not as confusing as it might appear. All I've done here is take the, the uh, insulation curve, the sunlight curve, as, as calculated by astronomers, and extended it from whatever I'm at here, zero, um, one million years, back to seven million years, to around the origin of hominins here. And you can see there's a number of these little peaks occur every now and again where precession is kicked up by eccentricity. This is the lot we've been working on in detail over the last few years that go from 2.7 to 2.5, and so it's not relevant to these things. But in the last season, we went back in time and tried to find diatomites that might match with these uh, earlier uh, little peaks. And so far, we found them there and here and here. And their dates, which the dates were just done a couple of weeks ago, so a preliminary, uh, one is 3.8 to 3.7 million, one 4.9 to 4.8, and the other 5.8 to 5.7. And these will continue into the past as well. 
So all of these are getting into the area where it might matter for, uh, for human evolution, for early human evolution. Now, the reason I think this is perhaps important, and these are the conclusions, is that we, we, where, where most of the fossils are actually found the environments were clearly varied and patchy, which may be important in itself for our evolution, uh, but they were mainly woodland or forest at the time of our origins and for a good length of time afterwards. Sorry. The other thing is that these astronomical variations actually do cause remarkable changes in climate and environments in the Rift Valley of Africa on a predictable basis. And I'd argued against this for years. I thought this was highly unlikely. But it's quite clear that it's true. And it's been happening regularly uh, from before the beginning of hominids to the present day. It's not only happening in the Tugan Hills. This is not something that's just about my expedition. But since it's, uh, it's, it's caused by astronomical variations, which we understand pretty well, it must have had some effect all the way through Africa. And you're not always going to get lakes. You, you need a situation where a lake basin can be and form. You don't have this happening, say, in the Hadar, for example, at two and a half million years, because the, the, it, it's not a, a structure that would have a lake basin. But it, it will have some strong climatic effect there, just as much as it does in, in the Tugan Hills. The lakes are simply a symbol and a sign that some really strong environmental short-term change is taking place. How does it affect evolution? Well, it's hard to be specific. And I'm certainly not saying, okay, we've got a lake and either the hominids become extinct and have to you know, come from somewhere else or they get up on their back legs so they don't get their hands wet or anything like this. But what is going to happen is that it's going to cause the breakup of communities to which they belong. Uh, and it will, it will uh, then... After a few thousand years, which is a relatively short time scale, they'll come back together again and recombine, but they'll do it in different ways. And you'll have a kind of kaleidoscope effect. It's a kind of shake-up of animal communities, and then within eight, 10,000 years, uh, re-coalescing into another pattern. And this is a perfect setup for relatively simple uh, Darwinian uh, speciation. These diatomites that you can see here, this being one of them, are also incredibly uh, good archives of all kinds of other climatic information that we believe we're going to be able to get temperatures uh, on a yearly basis back in time. Even at, say, 7 million years, we'll be able to have a record of annual temperatures and monitor this kind of thing over these periods. And I, I think they're a really remarkable archive that I hope will cast some light upon the origin of hominids and also on their subsequent evolution. These are some of the people who have provided funding, for which I'm grateful, and thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.